We're here today discussing sustainable solutions to pollution in the Ganges. My name is Max Zimberg. And I'm Mary Bannister, and we're students in the Sustainable Development Department at Columbia University. The Ganges River is considered to be a sacred mother goddess by the Hindu majority population in India, yet it's also one of the most polluted rivers in the world. This aqua pollution comes from a variety of sources, but it's mostly the result of inefficient sewage and sanitation facilities, unable to accommodate India's large and growing population, leading to unregulated open defecation, trash disposal, and even cremation. The pollution is also a combination of discharge from factories, tanneries, and agricultural runoff that is only exacerbated by the silt coming from the seasonal monsoons. This also includes everyday pollution from people throwing plastic in the river, bathing, bringing cows to the river, and performing religious rituals known as pujas that involve throwing artifacts like flowers or even dead bodies into the river to invoke liberation from reincarnation, called moksha. Max, did you know that the Ganges River Basin is the most highly populated river basin in the world? It accounts for 25% of India's water, with 400 million people relying on the river for water to drink. This is a major public health problem. Drinking or using the water from the Ganges results in GI disease, cholera, dysentery, hepatitis A, typhoid, and many other bacterial diseases that result from open defecation. The Indian government has made efforts since the 1980s to counter this pollution of the river. The problems include lack of public involvement, exclusion of groups, local inefficiency and corruption, and lack of monitoring. There's also a major disconnect about what pollution even means to policymakers, environmentalists, Hindu devotees, and Buddhists living in the region. Clearly, this issue involves complex interactions between many different stakeholders, which will require culturally driven and bottom-up approaches rather than top-down or siloed solutions. Our podcast aims to encapsulate these many perspectives. And rather than amplifying the role of religious activity as part of the problem, we aim to reveal the ways in which Hindu and Buddhist ideas can instead be used in tools that actually promote protection of the river. We hope to provide a larger cultural context for this complex problem and provide tools to those working for solutions at the nexus of sustainable development and public health. We are so grateful for the invaluable conversations we had with experts surrounding this issue from the Columbia community, including Dr. Rachel McDermott, Hindu goddess scholar and professor of Asian and Middle Eastern cultures at Barnard College, Dr. Thomas Yarnall, a scholar of Buddhist philosophy and ethics at Columbia, Anthony Asiavati, who is trained as a historian, cartographer, architect, and author of Ganges Water Machine, designing New India's ancient river who has mapped and traveled the length of the Ganges River. And Dr. Ugmanu Lal, civil engineer and director of Columbia Water Center and senior research scientist at the International Research Institute for Climate and Society. First, we'll be hearing from the Hindu mythological perspective from Dr. Rachel McDermott, moving into environmental ethics from a Buddhist perspective with Dr. Thomas Yarnall, And Mary and I will be discussing what this possibly could mean for sustainable development and the fact that the Ganges was recently given the legal rights of a human. Well, 
what is vital to understand religious and cultural perspectives, sewage and lacking infrastructure are still the main sources of pollution. So we could not leave out the invaluable insights of Anthony Asiavati and Ubani Lal, who have both worked in connection with the Indian government on this problem. This leads into what certain NGOs and non-state actors are also doing about this issue. So we'll end with a quick word about current solutions from NGOs such as Sea Ganga or events like India Water Week. We're so happy you're here listening and we hope you enjoy the podcast. So Professor McDermott, as a Hindu goddess scholar, can you tell us about how the Ganges River is depicted in the Hindu tradition? The river Ganges in art is depicted as a beautiful woman sitting on a crocodile-like vehicle called a makara. And so, and she's supposed to be the, a goddess of purity who washes away all sins, right? And she, um, and there are temples to her at the very uh, beginning at the headwaters of the Ganges, there is a temple where the Ganges comes out and people go and worship her. So she's viewed as a, um, a very auspicious beatific deity who brings life and purity to the world. The problem with uh, many people who don't want to admit that the Ganges is polluted is that they say, well, and how can the mother be anything but pure? You may think she's impure, but Actually, the mother is always pure, and she has been said in the scriptures to wash away all sins. So how is this mythology being applied to the pollution problems? So that's why I say it's a creative process. You, you mine your scriptures for things to use. When um, NGO workers or local people try to initiate projects to help clean her up, they often will utilize imagery of the goddess um, and sometimes they say, well, she is our mother and she is pure, but she has been dirtied by her children um, such that now the way to serve the Ganges is to try to um, clean her. And she needs her sons and her daughters to restore her. Um, of course, she's always pure in, an, in a sort of spiritual sense, but the Ganges has been defiled by pollutants and corruption and things like this. So, but, you know, it's not going to help people who are factory owners. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to buy into this. They want money. Um, they want just the way, you know, in any environmental debate in any country, you have the developers on the one hand and the idealistic environmentalists on another. So it's an uphill battle. The same problem exists for the Yamuna River which is also that uh, splits off at Allahabad from the Ganges River. And so the Yamuna River is the place where Krishna and Radha apparently sported. And so many people say, well, do seva to Krishna and to Radha by cleaning up the river that they loved. Remember the story that uh, there, it was full of uh, poisonous snakes, the Yamuna, and Krishna dives into it and he finds one snake that has a thousand heads and he subdues it and dances on the heads and all the wives of the snake god come up and they pray to, Shiv, to Krishna, you know, don't kill our husband. And he says, okay, but go to the sea, get out of this river. 
Um, so just as he tried to get rid of the pollutants or the, the elements in the river that were harming it and harming people around it, you could say that, let us be like Krishna. Shiva is supposed to be the god who brought the Ganges to earth by, ask, by agreeing to have it come on his head. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, because it, the force of it would have been too great to, for the earth to bear, so he said, I'll break the fall. So that's why when you see images of Shiva, he often has a river uh, on his head. So again, people can say, well, Shiva um, did service for the river by, by taking it physically onto his body. We should do something similar. So using mythology or people's beliefs to help, you know, the Ganges will punish you if you keep polluting her. But I don't know if that has happened yet. I doubt it. Because then the NGOs would be pit against the factory owners or against the police. Mm. I don't think that has happened. But certainly she is uh, the, the mother in need. You know, the, the mother's makara or her vehicle can't survive in this water. So uh, we have to clean up so that the fish can survive. And sort of drawing upon things that everybody recognizes about her. Um, do seva, do service to the goddess by uh, helping to stop factories putting uh, pollutants into the river, or help the mother by joining cleanup uh, crews along the bank. It's so interesting to learn more about the mythological underpinnings of the Ganges and how these reinterpretations could be possible solutions. So rather than thinking of Mahaganga as impolutable, she's rather seen as suffering and someone who we need to help. You know that in the struggle for Indian independence from the British, Mother India as a whole was shown as this, as a suffering mother who needed the help of her children. Exactly, and it was a powerful way to rally people in saving Mother India and declaring independence. It was actually author Bankim Chandra Chatterjee who popularized depictions of Mother India in three ways, India of the past, of the present, and of the future. So in the past, India was seen as Durga, who's the warrior mother goddess. In the present, she was seen as emaciated Kali, who's a goddess of wrath and anger and darkness, much like the river is today. In the future, who knows, India has to be portrayed as a mother needing the protection of her sons, and we found this interpretation to be particularly important to sustainable development, as thinking about a way a country or a society is shaped in the present, in the past, and most importantly, the future. NGOs on the ground in India are really incorporating this idea using Hindu mythology. One really cool NGO we found is called Help Us Green. They do something called flower cycling. So they take flowers that are thrown ritualistically into the river and they reuse them, employing local women to turn them into incense and fertilizer, which can be sold to make a profit. On the website, they use a lot of language like that we saw referenced by Rachel McDermott, like saying how the Ganges is synonymous with the Indian civilization, but that she is dying. So they're doing this to help the Ganges in a very creative hackathon type way. 
and their products are pretty cool. I want some of these incense I things. know, right? <laughs> that's a whole nother topic on global health is how incense cause asthma, but that's another podcast. <laughs> um, so like any good hackathon, they're solving a problem. So in India, the floriculture industry is growing at 5% annually. And to grow all of these flowers, there's a lot of farm runoff that's poisoning the Ganges and the groundwater. Harmful pesticides and insecticides are used to grow these flowers at such high rates. And the vast amount of flowers decomposes along with fecal coliform bacteria that is giving rise to severe diarrhea, cholera, and other waterborne diseases. So we urge you to go onto their website. This is not a paid promotion, though if you feel like sponsoring us, help us green. We would take some green. <laughs> so essentially, their hackathon product is a chemical-free pack of seedlings where the actual package decomposes and turns into a beautiful Tulsi plant, which is very culturally appropriate given that Tulsi is grown and used for tea all over India. And their packaging is ripe with Hindu mythology, deities like Ganesha, who is, you may have seen, the little elephant boy who's a remover of obstacles. So it's a very culturally appropriate and innovative solution to pollution in the Ganges. So for Hindus, the Ganges is a goddess. Buddhism also came out of India. So what about Buddhism? Do Buddhists see the Ganges River as a sacred being? Or even, as the river has now been given rights, as a sentient being? Now we'll talk with Professor Thomas Yarnall on the Buddhist perspective. The first thing I would say is that uh, sometimes Buddhist perspectives on nature, in quotes, are surprising to Westerners. Uh, so in general, the natural environment, at least the inanimate part, like rivers and mountains and trees and so forth, is not really considered holy or sacred in most cases. Although it can be inspiring, of course, uh, nature can be, and it's granted there are holy pilgrimage sites or sites that are considered sort of special from a Buddhist perspective that in some way contains some special energy or presence. But for the most part, nature at large isn't really considered holy or sacred, although it is considered more in practical terms as the environment, in the sense of a container or habitat that, uh, or support for all sentient beings. The uh, haphazard, the inconsiderate destruction of natural habitats that are critical for the survival and the flourishing of other types of sentient beings is considered uh, unacceptable from a Buddhist moral ethical point of view. So, from you know, in terms of tying this into the issue of the Ganges, then uh, any sort of um, destruction of of a river such as the Ganges, and so far as it's uh, you know habitat for many types of non-human sentient beings, Buddhists would shine a light on that. It's important to realize that we are part of nature. Ultimately, nature will always be more powerful than human beings, even with all their human beings, even with all their nuclear weapons, scientific equipment, and knowledge. If the sun disappears and the Earth's temperature changes by a few degrees, then we're really in trouble. But at a deeper level, we should recognize that although we are part of nature, we can control and change things to some extent due to our intelligence. Among the thousands of species of mammals on Earth, we humans have the greatest capacity to alter nature, and as such, we have a twofold responsibility. Morally, as beings of higher intelligence, we must care for this world. Other inhabitants of the planet, insects and so on, do not have the means to save or protect this world. 
world. Our other responsibility is to undo the serious environmental degradation that's the result of incorrect human behavior. So, Professor Yarnell, what do Buddhists say about possible solutions to anthropocentric environmental degradation? I thought it would be helpful to find some comments by some leading Buddhist scholars and teachers, and so I turned to uh, some comments that I found by both his own the Dalai Lama from Tibet and Thich Nhat Hanh, being a, uh, his history with the Vietnam War and so forth. He says, Explosion of bombs, the burning of napalm, the violent death of our neighbors and relatives, and likewise the pressure of time, noise, and pollution, and the lonely crowds, these all have been created by the disruptive course of our economic growth. They are all sources of mental illness, and they must be ended. Anything we can do to end them is preventative medicine, and political activities are not the only means to end them. And so there he's, he's again sort of suggesting that political activities are important, but so are psychological remedies, environmental activities, uh, socioeconomic, and so forth. And he talks elsewhere in here about the need to uh, attack issues relating to the media, education, and so forth. So again, from a Buddhist perspective, Thich Nhat Hanh is sort of demonstrating the fact that these are all interrelated issues and that uh, cleaning up the environment, preserving the environment is essentially critical to mental health and to the health of sentient beings. So now some uh, similar comments from the Dalai Lama. Uh, from the Dalai Lama's uh, book, Imagine All the People, a Conversation with the Dalai Lama on Money, Politics, and Life as It Could Be. And the interviewer asked, do you think democracy is helping laws to evolve in this way? And he answers, yes, in democratic countries, legal systems should work that way and generally do. But these laws, nevertheless, partially contradict the Buddhist principle of interdependence since these laws do not include quote-unquote democratic rights for the environment and the animal realm. Most legal systems refer only to human rights and do not consider the rights of animals or other beings that share the planet with us. This point on the Buddhist view of sentient beings is very interesting right now, given the fact that courts have very recently given the Yamuna and Ganges rivers the rights of human beings. It seems that a Buddhist would not agree with this, but they would see all animals that live within the rivers as having the same rights as humans do as sentient beings. From a Buddhist perspective, what role do political solutions play in this prob solving problems like this? So now some uh, similar comments from the Dalai Lama. Uh, speaking on the issue of politics, he said, if I were actually to vote in an election, it would be for one of the environmental parties. One of the most positive developments in the world recently has been the growing awareness of the importance of nature. Now he says, there's nothing sacred or holy about this. Taking care of our planet is like taking care of our houses. Since we human beings come from nature, there's no point in our going against nature, which is why I say the environment not a matter of a religion or ethics or morality. These are luxuries since we can survive without them, but we will not survive if we continue to go against nature. He then goes on to say, we have to accept this. If we unbalance nature, humankind will suffer. Of course, elsewhere he's mentioned all sentient beings will suffer. Furthermore, as people alive today, we must consider future generations. A clean environment is a human right like any other. Therefore, part of our responsibility towards others to ensure that the world we pass on is as healthier, not healthier, than we found it. 
That quote from the Dalai Lama sounds a lot like the 1987 Brundtland Report definition of sustainable development, which is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. I think it's so important that we mobilize children and people of all faith to think about the consequences of their polluting habits, not just in the short term, but what this will mean for future generations and other forms of biodiversity in life. So I can't stop thinking about what Dr. Lal said about the dolphins. I mean, the other thing to tell you is that, you know, up to maybe 30, 40 years ago, there were river dolphins. Uh, the river was teeming with life, even though there was pollution. Mm. Uh, and at this point, I don't think there's much of any life in there. No oxygen will do that. <laughs> yeah. I know, first the Ganges crocodile is dying, now all the river dolphins? Gangetic dolphins are actually a species of dolphin native and extant to the Ganges River. So there are all these negative externalities on the ecosystem of the Ganges and all the animals as well as humans that rely on it. So it's really going to take ecosystem-based management policies that take into account the entire ecosystem and symbiotic reliance of humans, animals, plants, and other natural resources. Plus, everybody loves dolphins, so this could be a really effective way to really rally up people's concern for pollution in the Ganges. Lastly, it is important not to make this a purely religious or faith-based issue. We bring in Buddhism here not as another religion, but as a philosophy because we could well go into Islamic perspectives, which are incredibly important in this issue, specifically because of the tanneries that line the Ganges River. These tanneries, or places where animal hides are tanned, typically water buffalo in this case, are mostly owned by Muslims, so they receive a disproportionate amount of blame for the pollutants and runoff going into the Ganges River. So Dr. Lal, can you explain the pollution problem from an engineering point of view and how the Ganges might be hydrologically unique? You have a series of canals that divert water from the river. This is one factor. This is for uh, irrigated agriculture in the states that the Ganges flows through. Okay? Mm -hmm. And there are barrages across the river that allow you to block the flow of 